Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of BioBytes. I'm your host, Sophia Ding. And today we're joined by James Manley, the Julian Clarence Levi Professor of Life Sciences at Columbia University, where his laboratory studies the mechanisms and regulation of gene expression in mammalian cells. Professor Manley is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and a member of the National Academy of Sciences. Professor Manley, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. So to start, could you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in biological sciences? Sure, I'd be happy to. Actually goes back quite a ways uh, to when I was quite young, maybe grade school, even. And I remember something that had a lasting influence on me, which was the cover of a magazine back then. I think it was called Life Magazine. And it was famous for having beautiful pictures of different things on, on its cover. And it, this was probably the early 1960s, mid-60s, and it had a picture of the DNA double helix. And I think it was coinciding when Watson and Crick won the Nobel Prize for their discovery of the DNA double helix about a decade before that. And I was just stunned by the beauty of that structure and sort of thought, wow, how does that work? How can that explain, explain life? And that was the start of my journey. It wasn't a straight path forward by any means. Um, I might mention in passing, I thought I was maybe unique or a little odd with that uh, beginning to my, my interest in biology. But many years later, I learned that a former colleague of mine here at Columbia named Laurel Eckhart, was a professor she left a while ago, had the same story as I did. She was also influenced by that, that very picture. Um, as I said, going forward, I got distracted by a variety of different things along the way. Um, I came to Columbia. I grew up in Minnesota and came to Columbia in the late 1960s. Uh, my first year, the freshman year, was the famous uh, Columbia Revolt. Um, some of you might be aware of the politics of the time, and that was sort of a certainly a distraction. Um, I got interested in golf for a little while, <laughs> uh, played some golf here at Columbia. But towards the end of my um, time as an undergraduate, I got to work in a laboratory here at Columbia with a scientist named Jeffrey Zube, um, who passed away a few years ago. And he had made this remarkable discovery to me, which is to able be able to take DNA isolated from bacteriophages um, and put it in an extract of E. coli bacteria. That was the model organism at the time for studying all sorts of things to do with biology, molecular biology. And you could take that DNA and it would be accurately transcribed, made into messenger RNA in the cell-free extract in a test tube, and then that would be translated by ribosomes to give proteins. And I thought that was just fantastic. That was a way of figuring out how genes worked, which is, I said, I became interested in many years before that. And I, uh, I studied 
with him for a couple of years, um, helping support my last years at Columbia driving a taxi cab when I wasn't working in the laboratory, um, but was fascinated by that and then went on to do graduate work at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in uh, New York and then uh, postdoctoral work at MIT in Cambridge. Um, my goal during those studies was to develop an extract that would be able to do what this Zubay extract, it was called the Zubay system, uh, an extract from mammalians, human cells, that could do the same thing with, with our DNA. And fortunately at MIT, um, where I studied with a couple of great scientists, one a guy who became an immunologist named Malcolm Gefter, and another Phil Sharp, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering the process of messenger RNA splicing. Um, but while at MIT, I was able to uh, develop an extract from human cultured cells uh, that would do the same as this Zupe extract with, um, except with mammalian components. And this actually became known as the Manley system and was used by scientists for a number of years. I should say it was all based on the use of HeLa cells, which maybe some of you are familiar with HeLa cells um, and the controversy that surrounds them. They were taken from a very aggressive ovarian cancer in Johns Hopkins um, from a woman named Henrietta Lacks. And uh, there was a book published about this a few years ago. I forget the name of it, but it described how um, her, she wasn't aware and her family wasn't aware of what was going on and these cells were, were um, used, taken from her. And they've been used extensively in biological research um, and in making some recombinant molecules for pharmaceutical purposes, but mainly for research. And I think it's fair to say that my career might not be where it is today without Henry Letta Lacks and her cells. They played a really important role in developing extracts that could reproduce reactions that happen in our cells. In the early 1980s, I came back to Columbia as an assistant professor, and I've set my, set my lab up here. And I've been here for over 40 years, continuing to work on uh, how genes are expressed and mostly how messenger RNAs are made by uh, RNA processing reactions, including this one called splicing, um, uh, which is, uh, has been fascinating uh, in the last few years. And maybe we can get in, I'm not sure what questions you want to ask about current research. Yeah. Uh, I'll stop in a second, but we've been interested in links between RNA processing and RNA synthesis in the nucleus of cells and human diseases in the last decade or so. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so my next question is like definitely about like diving more into your research. Um, so like you're, you mentioned now your lab like studies the regulation of alternative splicing and also polyadenylation. Maybe could you explain how your lab investigates the regulation of this process and its implication for different cell types and diseases? Mm -hmm. um, so as I said when I set up my lab here, we were interested in mechanisms of gene expression. 
Um, we started out using these extracts, similar to this one I just described, the manly extract and related ones. Um, and the first goal was to get these extracts, not only to, to allow the RNA polymerase in the cell to initiate transcription and make a messenger RNA precursor, as it's called, um, because in, in eukaryotic human cells, the RNA that's first transcribed by the RNA polymerase needs to then be what we call processed in the nucleus of the cell. And that involves um, the process you just alluded to called splicing, removing of introns from the RNA. Virtually all of our genes contain introns, uh, make messenger RNAs that contain introns, and these have to be removed by that complex process. And then at the end of the gene, the end of the transcript, there's another processing of this RNA, which involves cutting it by an endonucleus and adding a string of adenosine residues onto it by another polymerase called a poly-A polymerase. So my lab and others worked on reproducing those reactions, and we were successful eventually, and then trying to purify the components that were involved in doing this, and, and then how are they regulated? So that gets to the question you asked. Um, one of our discoveries with respect to splicing made in the early 90s was the discovery of regulatory proteins, RNA binding proteins, RBPs they're called, um, that could bind to specific sequences in messenger RNA precursors and, um, and control their splicing. This is the process you refer to, alternative splicing, uh, which can dictate whether an intron is removed or not or precisely where the ends of the intron are. They can be at different places in the RNA precursor, and when they're spliced differently, they make different messenger RNAs that can make different, different proteins. And so we were, along with the lab at Cold Spring Harbor, the first to discover these regulatory proteins called SR, standing for serine arginine, because they are enriched in those two amino acids. And as start to figure out how they work. My lab uh, came up with a concept that has been important in many cases of, of RNA splicing, and as I'll tell you in a moment, polyadenylation as well, where the intracellular concentration of these proteins can vary, can be up or down, regulated in cells as they differentiate or in disease. And the more proteins are, that are made, it changes the RNAs they bind to because there's different affinities between RNAs and proteins, and the interaction of a protein with an RNA is then driven by the concentration. So as you increase the concentration of SR proteins, you can change the utilization of splice sites. And that's been a, one important concept in understanding how splicing is regulated uh, during differentiation or disease. The splicing reaction is extremely complex and took the, the work of many, many labs around the world to figure out how it works. It requires these particles called small nuclear RNPs, SNRNPs, that are composed of a small RNA molecule and proteins 
and they interact with the messenger RNA in different regions around the intron to catalyze the splicing reaction with the aid of addition, many additional proteins, such as this SR proteins that I talked about. Polyadenylation is also surprisingly complex, given it's a much simpler reaction. Just one simple endonucleolytic cleavage, we call it, cutting the RNA, and then a single enzyme of polyA polymerase adds azon to the end. Nonetheless, we and others found out there were 15 or 20 proteins that had to assemble into a big complex on the RNA to carry that reaction out. And we likewise discovered uh, a little later in the mid-19, mid to late 1990s that this reaction could also be regulated by the concentration in cells of different uh, components of this uh, complex of proteins. We discovered that one classic example of alternative polyadenylation, which is making different ends of messenger RNAs, which can lead to the proteins with a different C-terminal, carboxy-terminal end, uh, occurs in the synthesis, synthesis of immunoglobulins, where you can make, during immune responses, membrane-bound forms of an antibody or antibodies that are secreted out into the plasma. And we discovered that this was regulated by the changes in concentration of one component of this, a limiting component of the polyadenylation complex. And this has gone on to been shown a decade or so later by a number of labs, an important concept that helps in gene regulation and control, where the length of the RNA at, at, the, at the three prime end that's conferred by this alternative polyadenylation is in many cases driven by changes in concentration of these factors. Differentiation, differentiated cells, as our cells in our body differentiate, tend to have longer regions at their end. It's called a three prime untranslated region. And this, incurred in, uh, this region includes sequences that bind RNA binding proteins that typically downregulate uh, gene expression by silencing the translation of the RNA. And as cells differentiate, you want to turn off lots of genes that say not replicating anymore, and that's one way this is done. In cancer, on the other hand, the three prime ends are often shortened of RNAs that are involved in cell growth, so they no longer contain the binding sites for these RNA binding proteins and can't be downregulated by this mechanism, so more of these cell growth proteins are made from these messenger RNAs. Huh. That actually ends sort of like kind of going to like the next few questions I'm going to ask. So like we, in terms of like the roles that RNA binding proteins plays and what are their like implications um, to like diseases such as cancer or neurodegenerated diseases? Yeah, those are two things we've studied a lot in the last decade. Um, Going back to sort of the beginning of my career here at Columbia, I was always under the, um, the belief that changes, regulation of RNA processing would be uh, important in various diseases. And this was discovered very early on. Um, my lab only made a minor contribution to this, um, that one of the first genes that was studied in detail for how it 
is expressed, as we say, is a gene that encodes hemoglobin. And this is simply because in blood cells, hemoglobin messenger RNA is extremely abundant, 80% of the messenger RNAs. So in the very early days of gene cloning, this was a good tar target because there was so much of it. And this allowed scientists to make copies of this gene by reverse transcribing it with enzymes that convert it into DNA and then cloning the gene for human um, beta-globin, it's called. And this is linked to disease, the disease thalassemia, which can have mutations in, in, in the hemoglobin gene and how it's expressed. And indeed, there are mutations in the human uh, beta-globin gene that prevented its splicing. It signals in the gene that prevents splicing and signals that prevent it from being polyadenylated. So that was the, fir the first example of really how defects in this process can cause disease. These are called cis-acting mutations because they're actually in the gene and they influence how it's processed. And there's a number of examples that have come along of this kind of mutation. Um, more interesting, for, at least for someone interested in mechanisms of how this works, are uh, transacting factors. So we have the RNA with mutations in it the gene and the RNA, cis-acting. Transacting means they're in a, another factor, usually a, a gene that makes a protein, that will interact in trans, we call it, with the RNA. And there's lots of factors that can influence alternative splicing in disease, and we've been studying those uh, a lot. Uh, we've worked on uh, changes in splicing in glioblastoma, which is a very serious, deadly brain cancer. Um, it's not really caused by splicing. That's not the primary cause. There's other oncogenes. But driving the, uh, the proliferation and metastasis of these tumors involves changes in splicing, which we've been studying together with a colleague at the Columbia Medical School named Peter Canal, who an expert on glioblastoma. Um, what we discovered is that this is a case where RNA binding uh, regulatory proteins are upregulated in this disease. So this goes back to what I told you near the beginning when we had discovered, I don't know, 15 or so years before that, that changes in the concentrations of proteins can alter uh, their the the regulation of splicing in cells. And this is a real example of that. So uh, the expression of a number of RNA binding regulatory proteins is upregulated in cancers, particularly GB glioblastoma, at the transcriptional level. And this is often driven by oncogenes. Mm -hmm. So there's a famous oncogene called MYC, see MYC oncogene, it's a transcription factor that affects the expression of lots of genes and it turns up the level of these RNA binding proteins and that causes them to splice different RNAs in different ways and these can give rise to forms that cause cells to grow more rapidly. In many cases what happens is the splicing pattern reverts from what it is in adult cells which are more quiescent back to fetal 
patterns when cells are rapidly dividing and they need to make these components more rapidly, like cancer cells end up doing. So um, the changes in splicing often revert to the type of RNA processing splicing that happened in fetal cells when cells have to grow rapidly, and then cancer cells take advantage of that to drive their splicing. And this is something we continue to study to this day and are in, in identifying families of, of transcripts that are dysregulated that are involved in cell migration and, and, and proliferation that are altered by splicing to make proteins that are more effective at causing this horrible tumor to metastasize. Um, Splicing is an important regulatory mechanism also in neurodegeneration, which my lab has, has studied uh, for a decade or so. Um, what we've discovered, um, again, is that RNA binding proteins can be dysregulated in, in the disease called amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, which is another horrible disease where uh, patients afflicted with this disease die usually three to five uh, years after diagnosis by um, um, uh, losing the ability of their motor neurons to control their movements and even their breathing and eating ends up being lethal. This is also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. Some of you may know who Lou Gehrig is. He's a famous New York Yankee baseball player in I think the 1940s who had his career and life cut short by this disease. Uh, passing Lou Gehrig was also a Columbia student who um, reputation has it would play baseball out on the South Lawn, I think it's called, and hit the ball so far to break windows in low library. <laughs> uh, he didn't finish up, I don't think he graduated from Columbia because he was too good a baseball player and left to play baseball. Nonetheless, this disease ALS is driven by mutations uh, that affect RNA processing. It's driven by lots of different mutations, and there's different pathways that all lead to the same thing. But one uh, pathway is in, in RNA binding proteins, which we've studied. There's another very interesting um, way that splicing is dysregulated in ALS that my lab has contributed to. Um, and in fact, this is a mutation, the most common mutation that's known in ALS. ALS is a striking disease because only 10% of it is inherited, genetic. This is called familial ALS. The other 90% occurs sporadically. That means mutations are developed or something happens during a person's lifetime. And of this 90% that's sporadic, 75% of this, we don't know what goes wrong. There's no mutations that are known, just very confounding. And it may be that there isn't a mutation, that it may be due to stress on the brain. You may have heard of different football players and so forth getting various brain diseases. Um, this hasn't been definitively proven for ALS, but it, it might be the case because so many cases of ALS, we just don't see a mutation. But amongst those where we do know what goes wrong, the major um, 
gene that tends to be mutated is called C9ORF72. Not a very informative name. It's chromosome 9 open reading frame 72. So genes that have uh, of an unknown function are often denoted in that way. And this gene had no known function when it was discovered. And these mutations may affect the, the, the protein levels. The protein's important for um, cell growth. It affects processes like something called autophagy, which clears um, aberrant proteins from cells. But uh, this mutation in C9RF72 is a fascinating one, at least it was to me and my colleagues, because what it is is an expansion of a hexanucleotide, six nucleotides, and it's a sequence within, I think, the first intron of this gene. And in normal people, there's a dozen or so copies of this hexanucleotide, which is CCGGGG. But in patients that um, develop ALS because of it, could be hundreds or thousands of repeats of this sequence. So my first thought when this was discovered in other labs is, how the heck can RNA polymerase transcribe through this? Now we're getting we get into just a little bit of nitty gritty that you all may not be familiar with unless you've taken the molecular biology course and know the distinction between guanine and cytosine base pairs in the double helix and adenine and thymine base pairs. Guanine cytosines are we consider stronger because they have three hydrogen bonds as opposed to two holding them together. And when we have literally hundreds if not thousands consecutive GCs, I thought it would be very hard for the RNA polymerase to open up that DNA to copy one of the strands. And there is a little bit of problems, but it turns out RNA polymerase can get through that. But what it does is make an RNA then that has hundreds and hundreds of copies of this sequence, GG, CCGGGG. Turns out that's the binding site for an RNA binding protein. And there's so many of these made from this RNA that it can actually soak up, sponge up a particular RNA binding protein regulator that it reduces its effective concentration in motor neurons, and this leads to misplicing, dysregulated splicing of hundreds, if not thousands, of, of genes. And we believe this is a contributing factor that leads to motor neuron death. Um, our biggest interest right now in the lab has to do also back to another aspect of splicing which was a discovery a little over a decade ago by a scientist in Japan in Kyoto named Seiji Ogawa, who discovered that there are actually mutations in these proteins, the RNA binding proteins and components of the splicing machinery that carry out splicing. Um, he discovered it in a, a a hematological malignancy called myelodysplastic syndromes, which I hadn't even heard of until about a decade ago when this discovery uh, was made. And these mutations cause misplacing that somehow leads to cancer. So a big interest of, of my lab for the last decade uh, has been trying to figure that out. And it's really been um, work that I've gotten satisfaction of, even though we haven't yet uh, contributed directly to a cure where we actually are getting uh, 
promising leads on that, which I'll tell you about. It's also been wonderful because I've been able to, again, collaborate with other scientists at our medical school. This includes Azra Rasa, who's an MD at the medical school, who has uh, been a medical doctor who's treated patients with MDS her entire career and has a huge collection of samples, blood samples from these, these patients that are valuable to research. We've also worked with another incredible uh, scientist named Siddhartha Mukherjee, who is probably one of the more famous people at Columbia University. He's a great scientist, but he's also an incredible communicator, and he's written famous books, The Emperor of All Maladies About Cancer, which many people have probably read or heard of. There was even a television series with Ken Burns about it. He writes articles for The New Yorker frequently. Amazing, amazing guy. Um, and we've also collaborated with a computational biologist named Raul Rabadon, who's an expert in, in analyzing large-scale global data on RNA computationally. So we've been studying two aspects of, 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 um, of this problem. One is, how do these mutations, and these are usually, they're not big expansions like I just spoke about, they're always like single amino acid changes in the messenger RNA that makes a single amino acid change in the protein. So they're very subtle mutations, just changing one amino acid, but they can convert it from a normal protein into an oncogenic one. Um, one of these is a member of this family, and this is quite satisfying because it was discovered in my lab, uh, when I mentioned I discovered SR proteins in my lab in a lab, lab in Long Island in the early 90s. So here we are many years later and one of these is implicated in disease. And we were able to figure out how this mutation in that SR protein affects its ability to interact with specific sequences in RNA and it changes the, the affinity for different binding sites in ways that influence the splicing pattern. There are two other main mutation, uh, other proteins I'll tell you about in a moment that are mutated that we've been studying. But let me say a word about myelodysplastic syndromes. So this is a, a, a disease of, of blood cells. It's typically a disease of the elderly. It doesn't, isn't ever hardly detected in people under 60, but it increases really almost exponentially. It's probably the most common hemological malignancy uh, that there is um, as, as people get older. Um, what happens in this disease are blood cells don't differentiate properly. There's problems with that. And this can cause one of two things to happen. In a third of the patients with myelodysplastic syndrome, it progresses to a horrible cancer called acute myeloid leukemia, which is uh, almost always fatal within three years after it arises. So a third of the patients um, die pretty rapidly by AML. The other two thirds uh, don't convert to AML, but rather they, can, they continue to live, but their blood cells, their red blood cells, are not functional very well, and as time progresses over a slightly longer time scale, uh, they end up developing very, very severe anemia, and, and they don't produce enough blood cells, and they, uh, and they end up dying of anemia.
so we've been we've been studying um, both what might cause these transformations and also what goes wrong with the splicing factors. I told you the SR protein can't bind to to RNA properly. Another one of them, which is the most common one, most common mutation in MDS, and it's also cropping up in a number of cancers now. It's commonly mutated in various melanomas and other uh, leukemias, as well as in solid tumors, such as lung and breast cancer, where it's more rare, but it definitely crops up there. So uh, to me, who's my entire career has been studying um, the mechanism. What, how are these RNA processing reactions controlled? This was a very challenging one. And we had, don't completely understand it yet, but we made a lot of progress. So this protein is called SF3B1. Um, what it is is a component of one of these SNRPs, in particular called the U2 SNRP, that recognizes a sequence in the messenger RNA precursor and helps set up the entire machinery to carry out the splicing reaction. So it's not a regulatory protein like we've been talking about. It's a what we call a core splicing factor. It's required for every single splice in our body. And there's there's, there's roughly 25,000 protein coding genes in, in the human body. Each one contains on average about 10 introns. So there's 250,000 introns in our genome that need to be spliced out. The mutation in this SF3B1, and it's very, this is very interesting because there's also a whole slew of different mutations throughout the proteins. They're all just single amino acid changes. You only get one that can cause a disease. Some of them work by the same mechanism that we've actually figured out in this lab. I'm very proud of that. Others, we're still trying to figure out how they work. Um, but there's only a few hundred genes that are introns that are misspliced. The splicing is altered in a way that you often make defective proteins that are quickly degraded. So the concentration of the product goes down in the cells. So why so few and how does it work? Turns out the reason why has not been 100% proven, but it probably has to do with the exact layout of sequences in the RNA that this protein recognizes either correctly or when it's mutated, it recognizes the wrong sequence. I won't get into the details of that, but probably only a fraction of our introns have the exactly the right landscape of nucleotide sequences that make them subject to the mutations in this uh, SF3B1 protein. So how does it work? Uh, how does a single mutation cause this? And we've, we've sort of discovered how this works by biochemistry, which is what my lab is specialized in. Uh, an outstanding postdoc in the lab, a research associate named Jian Zhang, has done much of this work. And he, he discovered that a protein that binds to this uh, sequence, one and only one protein, it's called SUGP1, I won't get into what that name means. That, that binding is weakened by several of these mutations, including the most common one that's found in many, many cancers. And when that, this protein can't bind correctly, then the, the SF3B1, and hence the U2-SNRP, doesn't in turn, isn't in turn able to function as it's 
supposed to. Uh, it's defective in recruiting yet another enzyme called a helicase, which moves the RNA along. It, it pulls the RNA through the SNRP so the right sequences are recognized. And um, this doesn't happen correctly. And instead, the cell makes a mistake when this interaction is disrupted. So this has been been uh, very, very um, satisfying. It's a complex reaction building, um, involving a, a number of proteins, as I just said. We've just uh, completed a collaboration, submitted a paper with a group in China where we really analyzed the, the details of these protein-protein interactions. Mm -hmm. And for that, we've used artificial intelligence, a program called AlphaFold, which has gotten lots of fame in biology. You're shaking your yeah, head. Are you yeah. familiar with AlphaFold? <laughs> For sure, yeah. Um, so it's developed in the last couple of years in amazing ways that it um, can allow you to solve the structure of protein complexes. So we were able to look how these proteins I've been telling you about come together at the atomic level. AlphaFold's just a prediction, so it's important to verify that your prediction's right. So we do that by mutating all the predicted targets and can really show how it comes together and how literally uh, a dozen different cancer mutations in both SF3B1. We also discovered, and this was really satisfying discovery with Raul Rabadon, who did a totally independent computational study, found this sub-P1 also has mut cancer-causing mutations in it, and all of them affect this one interaction. It's really striking. Um, uh, right now, we're continuing that work, looking, I mentioned that there's other parts of this SF3B1 that also have cancer mutations, and we've discovered that they may work by interacting with another RNA-binding protein, um, that the reaction goes awry and causes prostate cancer in that mm -hmm. case. Um, last thing I'll tell you is about uh, some of, uh, I'll tell you two more things if I have time. Um, one is we figured out part of the question about how these mutations cause disease. And in particular, you'll remember I mentioned in myelodysplastic syndromes, uh, one phenotype is uh, of two-thirds or so of the patients as they die of this severe anemia. And I think we sort of figured out how that works, which is splicing in a protein kinase is disrupted. It's a so-called so MAP kinase. And MAP kinases regulate a number of proliferative or developmental processes, uh, including playing a role in differentiation of, of blood cells. So this splicing defect dysregulates this process. So the ultimate target in this pathway is a is a transcription factor called GATA1 doesn't get activated properly, and this we could show leads to. Um, improper premature differentiation of blood cells and then they die by apoptosis. Uh, so we think this is a major player in how these uh, the mutations cause, um, uh, cause anemia. Other labs, are, other labs around the world are contributing other things about, for example, uh, one of the melanomas, another laboratory discovered that splicing of a of a chromatin remodeling protein is dis disrupted that can activate the wrong genes and contribute to melanoma. Uh, the last thing I'll tell you about then is a, 
a, a big screen we've done with support from a pharmaceutical company uh, that was called Celgene, that's now part of Bristol Myers Squibb, who gave us funds to carry out a screen, large, um, high throughput screen of small molecules that might selectively uh, kill cancer cells. And we've come up and are now characterizing them. A student named uh, Pedro Pop Gordon, who actually had an MD from Portugal before he became here to be a PhD student. Mm -hmm. Has, has characterized how one of these compounds work. It, it, um, it kills selectively uh, cancer cells that have a mutation in a splicing factor. I didn't mention yet, it's one of the big three. It's not SRSF. Uh, the SR protein, nor is it SF3B1, it's something called U2AF, which also was a, a core splicing factor. This compound um, selectively kills those cells and it does so by having nothing to do with splicing but rather it binds to a protein involved in DNA repair and we think it prevents that protein from from uh, functioning and that's somehow is synthetically lethal we call it by the mutation in the splicing factor they're sort of on edge to die and if you inhibit this process non-homologous end joining, it's called, that synthetically lethal with those. We think, and this is just our hypothesis that I've been thinking a lot about recently, um, there's a misplicing event in these cells where another protein involved in DNA repair is misspliced and its levels are greatly reduced. So we think those two things together, inhibiting um, the protein called Q70 that this drug binds to, the small molecule binds to, uh, together with this other defect are too much for these cells and they therefore die. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, uh, that's where we stand in our efforts to come up with possible cures for this disease. We're working uh, to move forward with that and also figure out how some other compounds we've discovered that target other splicing factor mutations work. Awesome. Yeah, and you mentioned a little bit about this, but really curious to get some glimpse into like day-to-day -day life, um, working in the lab, like um, usually how do you and your team go about like conducting experiments and advancing your research at the lab? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good question. I do nothing but sit at my desk, um, uh, um, writing papers, of course, teaching. I teach. Most of my teaching has to deal with these topics in gene expression, both mm -hmm. in undergraduates and graduate students, mm -hmm. and, and meeting with the, the people that work in, in my lab informally, or um, I have formal meetings with each person every other week. We have a lab meeting the alternate weeks where someone presents their work and gets, gets feedback. Um, people carry on their experiments in the lab. I, I encourage independence uh, amongst them, and when someone comes up with a new idea, more frequently than not, I'd say, let's go with that. And, and they carry it out. Often it works, sometimes not. Occasionally I think, oh, maybe that's not such a good idea, and let's not go that direction. Okay. Um, but I, I try to give people to, the opportunity to work together. We work on a lot of different things. Uh, I didn't even get into some of the other things we work on. We still work on them. Uh, mRNA polyadenylation mm. quite a bit has some interesting results there and a, a couple other things 
so there's lots of things going on. I like people to interact with each other, but sometimes their specific research is different enough that um, they don't have real in-depth insights, but we use a lot of the same methods in everything we do, mm -hmm. so there's a lot of exchange of those kind of ideas. Um, I also encourage people to go to relevant meetings, mm -hmm. which we hadn't done much of because of the pandemic, mm -hmm. one of the things are called off for a few years. There was a meeting um, recently that I, I've gone to people from my lab for 40 years since the meeting was founded. It's a meeting on mRNA processing where mm -hmm. the announcement of splicing was discovered many other years and lots of important things. It's at this laboratory in Long Island mm -hmm. where I actually got my PhD called Code Spring Harbor Labs. Mm -hmm. And a couple of people from my laboratory spoke at the most recent Code Spring Harbor meeting. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the meeting and mRNA, like now in the world, we're seeing a lot of application of mRNA. I mean, the most recent Nobel Prize yep. was awarded to like uh, uh, Caitlin Carrico and Drew Weissman for their discovery concerning like nucleoside-based modification that enabled the development of effective mRNA vaccines against COVID-19. So like, what are your thoughts on these like recent developments regarding mRNA? I think it's amazing. I have to say, Looking back a decade ago, um, I, I knew some scientists who founded the company Moderna. That's mm -hmm. yeah. the, the two you just mentioned don't, uh, were from Pfizer and another competing BioNTech, where so mm -hmm. they actually did their studies. But as everyone knows these days, and Moderna and Pfizer made these vaccines. I just had my latest booster, the sixth vaccine I've had, I think, against COVID. Okay. Um, uh, uh, there was a colleague of mine named Melissa Moore who also worked on uh, mRNA splicing and she went off to Moderna and I said, what are you doing? You're not going to make, be able to make drugs, vaccines, medicines out of messenger RNA. It's too unstable. It's just going to be degraded. Uh, and then at the beginning of COVID, I heard that these companies were testing things and I still said, yeah, <laughs> I was wrong, fortunately. Obviously, they, they did work, and um, they're, they're going to be very powerful, uh, I think, going forward in the future to develop messenger RNAs that may meet proteins that compact all sorts of different uh, ailments, maybe even, mm -hmm. even, even cancer. We, my lab didn't contribute directly uh, to the development of these vaccines, but some of the things we discovered, the basic molecular biology of poly-A tails on, on RNAs and something called a cap at the other end might have contributed to understanding how yeah. those things are made and work, so yeah, satisfying. It's also fun now to go out and uh, story often tells I can go to the, the, the barber, barber I've been going to for a couple decades, barbershop. And this guy now knows all about uh, messenger RNA and PCR. Everyone's learned about these things because of COVID and yeah, yeah. The mRNA vaccines. Wow, he's getting lessons. <laughs> okay, that's awesome. So just like maybe wrapping up, like um, for our final question, do you have any advice for young scientists looking to like pursue a career in like biological sciences or research more broadly? Well, it's, it's becoming tougher these days, and support from the government hasn't grown. It's remained constant, at least. Um, there's a huge competition for jobs in academia, uh, and it, it can be difficult. 
So I, I think there's a, a, a few things you have to have. Um, one is a love of science, and a love of what you're doing and an appreciation of it. So you see all the long hours and frustration with things that don't work. It's, it's not just a horrible aspect of working, but rather um, you're doing something you really enjoy. And I know when I was a student, a graduate student and a postdoc, so I, said, I can't believe I'm getting paid uh, to do these things I really, really think are great. So I, th I think it's important to really, uh, really love the science if you want to go in the uh, research academic direction. These days, a lot of our PhD students are not necessarily going the academic route because there's challenges, not only the great competition, but you have to be willing to spend lots of time writing grants and stuff like that. Um, I sort of still don't enjoy that aspect of it. And in fact, I really don't like it at all. I don't, it's something you have to do. Um, students, a lot of students are going in slightly different pathways now. Um, some are going to work for the burgeoning industries that we've talked about, in part because of mRNA vaccines. Um, they go that, that route. The, the typical route, I should say, maybe you know if you're going into academia, is after you get your PhD, you do what's called a postdoc, which uh, it's allows you to specialize and get more experience in what's going to be the uh, direction your own research lab goes to. So there's still a lot of students that, that uh, do that. Um, I think the last couple of students that uh, graduated from my lab are now doing, doing postdocs. And run over at Rockefeller University. This was a student who discovered this C9ORF72 binding to proteins in ALS. Um, but um, you might end up going a different direction into pharmaceutical companies, startup biotech companies. I've had a couple of students who have become uh, lawyers, patent lawyers. Uh, consultants for a company uh, about that want to invest in different uh, aspects of biology. Yeah, that's definitely really exciting. There's so much to like explore in the field. And yeah, but it continues to be lots to do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Professor Melly, and for sharing your insights and experience with our listeners. That's great. Thanks very much for the opportunity and I hope I've been able to say a few things that your audience will find useful. That concludes another episode of Columbia University BioBytes. To hear more about interviews with prominent scientists working at the intersection of biology, engineering, medicine, computer science, and mathematics, be sure to subscribe to our podcast channel on Spotify, known as Columbia BioBytes. Thank you for joining us.